Last time on SHOT. My mom would almost always have a mission for Black Friday. And this particular year, it was a new flat screen TV. So everyone geared up to go. My mom had a beat up 15 year old maroon minivan. I drove the van with my mom, my roommate Michelle, my ex Jack, and my siblings in the car. My brother, Kevin, asked Jack about the gun, and Jack showed him the gun while clearly stating not to mess with it. I asked if the gun could be put away because it just made me nervous, for good reason as it turns out. Then Katie called me. She had a lot of strain in her voice. She said that my mom was in an ambulance. I honestly couldn't tell what was blood and what was wine. Between Jack and the investigator, they explained that the gun my ex was carrying that night had been left under one of the seats unloaded. When my mom, my ex, and my two brothers went back to the car to smoke, again, just the adults, my brother Kevin had found the gun, loaded it, and shot it. The bullet traveled through the passenger seat and into my mom. A surgeon in a long white gown came out and he gave me the response I had assumed was coming. I had seen way too many movies where the doctor delivers bad news, and his face looked too similar. But he told me I should start preparing. When someone dies, or is about to die, it's pretty fucking crazy how selfish everyone gets. Like people get upset, and might cry and all, but death always turns into someone other than the person who died getting something. In a physical sense, you have family fighting over money and assets. And in the emotional sense, you have people seeking forgiveness or trying to settle personal debts with the deceased. And the person dying kind of gives in, right? Like people on their deathbed start to want to apologize to or exonerate those who have done them wrong and it feels like the perfect time to come to terms with everything. But is it? Is death really the appropriate time to do this? Why can't we go to our graves with grudges and vindictiveness? My mom and I always talked about her funeral prior to the incident. One summer, one of her good friends died. He was a gay man who wasn't necessarily in the closet, but was kind of forced into a life of hiding because he lived in such a small town. A great example of don't ask, don't tell. He seemed content with that life for whatever reason. He confided in my mom a lot because he knew she had a gay son. Hey, that's me. And knew that she was a safe space to open up to. She learned about his lack of support from family and friends and that he really wanted to find a partner to love. He never got that. But when he died, all these people and family came to his funeral. My mom couldn't believe it. All these people knew him? How? She came to understand that these people didn't really know him. I'm sure many knew his secret, but few sought to make him feel loved for it. But when he was dead, they all poured out of the woodwork like it was their duty. Now he was their son, their brother, their friend again. Who knows if he would have wanted them there or not? Who knows if they were there for money or to save face for the rest of the family? But my mom sat back and she told me to never allow certain people at her funeral. She didn't even have to name names for me to know who was on that list. I'm sure I don't have to list them for you either. She saw that even if people were there out of true guilt for not accepting him, 
that it was all too late. It's so easy to do the right thing when the person is gone, when someone isn't there to call them out or make them defend their previous actions. I understood this. I have a long list of people who I think will try to come to my funeral, and my friends have been made clear to not allow them in. My mom knew that her past would come out to try to say their goodbyes and shed their tears, and would try to never have to face the things they had done to her, that all would be forgiven. She tasked me with making sure they never forgot. Now, when my mom said this, she had no way of knowing that I'd have to start figuring out if she really truly meant it sooner than later. basic rules of gun safety that we talk about. And if you follow these rules, you're not going to have an accident. For every criminal killed in self-defense, 32 innocent people died, 78 guns were used in suicides, and two accidental deaths occurred. But if you don't do what's the right thing, you're not going to have, either you're not going to have a second amendment, you're not going to have much of it left, and you're not going to be able to protect yourselves, which you need. Welcome to SHOT, a new podcast featuring intimate true stories of accidental shootings and their aftermath. This first season is called The Night My Brother Shot My Mom with My Ex-Boyfriend's Gun. Last episode, which again you should go back to and listen to first and stop skipping around like a damn fool, I outlined what happened the night my mom was shot. And today I'm going to look at the moments after her doctor told us to prepare for her death. Excuse me if I get a little emotional in this episode. This is Death Becomes Us. After the nurses forced me out of my mom's room, I turned to Greg, the kid's dad, to form a plan. They weren't even going to try to look at doing another surgery until Saturday. It was now early Friday morning. They promised she'd be kept alive until then. I knew we needed to use this time the right way. I knew I needed to get back to the house, pack bags, and collect paperwork. All while starting to plan for the funeral. My sister Brittany decided to stay with me and my ex Jack, while Greg and Jane took my youngest brothers Stephen and Kevin back to their house. Brittany definitely felt more at home with me. Greg and Jane were surprisingly accommodating though. It was a side of them I had never seen. One would hope someone wouldn't try to dominate a situation like this knowing the past, but I still expected to have less control. But they pretty much listened to my plan to take Kevin and Steven back home to rest while I took care of things back at home. I grabbed my roommate Michelle from the waiting room and hit the road. Jack drove us back to our house in the van, which felt very weird, but it was all we had. I sat in the same seat my mom got shot in. 
Sitting in the seat, I could tell Jack was right about the bullet hole being right in the spinal area. I wondered if her spine or through her stomach would end up being worse. I told Mark and Jane that we'd call the Red Cross to help with getting in contact with my brother Derek so he could come home. Jack knew about the process. I dialed the phone, and it was the first time I had to tell someone what had happened. It was bizarre. I had to give the person on the line details I was just coming to terms with myself. And worst of all, I had to tell them that she would die. The woman asked if Kevin did it on purpose. I told her I didn't know because I truly didn't. Derek was granted 10 days of leave. He started his trip from Japan to home that day. My sister fell asleep in the back seat. Jack didn't talk much. So along the way, I started to make a list of things I needed. An obituary, insurance information, the will. My mom cleaned houses for a living so I needed to let her houses know too. I needed to let everyone know. Fuck. So I did what any millennial would do. I made a Facebook status. I wrote a very vague report of the incident. Didn't say shooting. Didn't say brother. Didn't say ex. Didn't say gun. Just that she was in critical condition after an accident. I also shared a black and white picture of our family. By family, I mean my mom, my siblings, and I. We had taken the photo a few years prior. I got my mom the photo session for Christmas since Derek was about to join the Marines and we might not get another family picture together for a long time. But the black and white picture of us in coordinating sweaters in the middle of a slightly snowy forest really symbolized our family. My mom was in the center with all of us snug around her. She was smiling, glowing. This was right after her sobriety. I posted the status, and likes started to pour in. But so did the past. We got to the house about an hour later. The house was as we left it. A puzzle we had done the day before was on the table. Thanksgiving leftovers in the fridge and my mom's brand new TV all set up and ready to watch. It was eerie to think about the happiness and the innocence that existed just hours before. We all thought we'd be coming back to the house with arms full of new clothes and useless gadgets. Instead, I had dark circles in the deepest pit in my stomach. I put a load of laundry in the wash and then went up to my mom's room and pulled out a fire safe box she put all of her files in. I started to pull out file after file, seeing what might be relevant. Since no one teaches you how to be prepared to lose a parent in their mid-forties, I didn't know what was important. So I shoved everything back in and picked up the 50-pound box and placed it in Jack's car. That way, I'd have everything if I needed it. Better safe than sorry. Shit. People say that about guns. I showered and packed a bag for myself. I made sure Brittany had her homework completed and she packed a bag as well. I didn't know how long to pack for, so I took everything. The laundry finished and for some reason the detergent hadn't washed out of some of the clothes. 
They were mostly my mom's infamous white t-shirts that she wore almost every day. So a bunch of her shirts were stained with blue detergent. I broke down for the first time. It was over something so small, white t-shirts, that would wash clean again with no issues. Suddenly, the shirts became the most important thing in the world to me. I had destroyed my mom's shirts. I held a shirt in my hand and cried into it on her bed. I cried so hard. It was as if all I had left of her were these white t-shirts, and they were gone. I sat there for a good 15 minutes crying as Brittany and Jack collected their things. For the first time, it hit me that she would never wear these clothes again, never sleep in her own bed again, never be in the house she worked so hard to keep for her kids and all of her struggles. It would soon go back to the bank and then to another family who would age and then die again. It hit me that I was the next in line it was me, then my mom, nothing in between. There were no older siblings, no husband, no grandparents. Cutting everyone out of our lives meant that I had sole responsibility for my mom. And like I do in my life, when I know I have responsibility, I take the responsibility. I looked at the road ahead and realized that my mom always recognized that every road actually has two ways. The first way is always right in front of you. That looks like the way that you need to go, the way that might be most inevitable. For her, it was potentially losing her kids and falling victim to alcoholism. But what she saw and had instilled in me to always look at were the ways that you don't see right away, the way that might be harder and longer but will make you grateful that you persevered. That way was the way no one expected her to take, but she did, and she came out on top and it was time for me to do the same for her. I threw her white t-shirts back in the wash to come clean, rid themselves of the damage, and become new again. If the t-shirts could be fixed, maybe all of this was not lost. That was enough to stand up and move forward. I grabbed my mom's suitcase and packed it with her favorite outfits, underwear, socks, cosmetics, pictures, blankets, anything that could feel like home. I threw it in the car with the fire safe box. We got back in the car. It was now 6 a.m. Michelle decided to stay at the house to keep things in check there. As we started to pull out, I realized I forgot the most important thing of all, my mom's phone book. I had taken her cell phone from the hospital, but my mom had a brown, alphabetized phone book that she put all of her contacts in. Technology wasn't her strong suit. It had all of our family members, one so obscure I hadn't even met them. It had all of her houses she cleaned for, and all of her friends. I grabbed it, and we pulled out of the driveway in Jack's car. No way we were getting in that van again. Brittany was in tears in the back seat. I grabbed her hand and Jack's and said, we're gonna bring her back. They nodded their heads in agreement. My mom also had a work calendar that she wrote out and had her clients' names listed on each day of the week. 
That upcoming week, she had about six to eight houses that I needed to call. It was early, but I didn't know what I was going to walk back into at the hospital. I won't go into each phone call, but they all went something like this. This dramatic interpretation was made possible with Sarah Barry. Hi, um, this is Tommy Craven. My mom is Stacy Craven. She cleans for you, correct? Oh, yes. Um, yes, what can I do for you? Well, I'm not sure if you've heard, but she was involved in an accident last night and is currently in the hospital. Oh my god, are the kids okay? Yes, everyone is okay. Oh my god, can I ask what happened? Um, well, she is just uh, badly injured, and I want you to know uh, that she probably won't be showing up this week. This was heartbreaking. Everyone thought it was a minor car accident. I didn't feel comfortable telling them the whole truth because of Kevin and just the sheer panic that would arise from a gunshot story. I went through about six phone calls like this and the thing that kept coming up was that they would say, tell her we love her. My mom spent so much time questioning her reputation after her past with alcohol. What would people think? Would they agree she should keep her kids? She had reason to be worried in our small town. My mom was always a maverick in a certain sense. She was definitely dominant and didn't buy into a lot of the small town values. Just the fact that she didn't go to church was a big one. She had loud opinions, progressive ones. She wasn't afraid to tell someone to shut up about gay people or correct someone's racial slur. Her personality was abrasive and she didn't have many friends. Then throw in the DUIs and a custody battle, and she was nothing but town trash. In the years after her stint with alcohol, she built back up her rapport in the town, and I think these conversations with her clients really solidifies that. Now, don't mistake, my mom gave zero fucks about what other people thought of her, but it was weirdly nice in this moment to hear that people loved her. One of the phone calls was a little more difficult. My mom had two people in her life that were her mom's best friends. They are a bit older, but still get around and live near my hometown. They were the closest thing to real family my mom had growing up and always supported her through everything. I'll name them Taylor and Abby. They won't come up much in this story, but their phone call was devastating for me. I don't think I could reenact it even if I wanted to. I decided to tell them what really happened. I said she was shot and probably wouldn't make it. Taylor started crying immediately over the phone. I broke down again. Sobbing, I tried to get the whole story out. She screamed in agony on the phone. She brought in Abby. I had to say it again. Jack and Brittany started crying too. I held Jack's hand tight. It brought me comfort. Abby and Taylor jumped in their car behind us. I continued to call my dad's side of the family. They were all immediately supportive. My dad told me he would also drive down. I called and texted my friends in New York. I called my supervisor at work. I was working for a TV network at the time as a writer and knew I couldn't afford to lose that job. I was just out of college. I told my supervisor to figure out how I could work from home. I called family friends. I made another Facebook status. 
the news called, and I made this statement. We're learning more today about the woman accidentally shot by her teenage son in an Evansville parking lot. It happened during the Black Friday rush last night just before 10. Stephanie Kayser is at the Evansville Pavilion Shopping Center on the east side where it happened. Steph. Jackie, police determined Stacy Craven was injured when her 15-year-old son fired a handgun while they were both seated in their van here in the parking lot. Officers believe the 15-year-old removed the gun from under the seat and pulled the trigger. Craven was shot in the back and was taken to a local hospital for treatment. The family released a statement to us saying she raised five kids as a single parent, so she's very strong. She will push through this. She is in the best position she can be at this moment. She's surrounded by family and friends and has everything she needs to get through this. Police again say this appears to be an accident and no charges have been filed. We arrived at the hospital about 8 a.m. And just bear with me because there was a lot of commotion and emotions happening. I remember for the most part who was there and when they were there and when they weren't there. But if I forget someone or I get a time wrong, then sue me. I know the major parts, which is what I think is important, but give me a free pass here that I'm telling you directly from memory and the accounts of others. The hospital cafeteria is where we set up home base. It was on the same level as my mom and could house all the people coming in and out. My friends Liz and Kate had already set up shop there. Sarah now joined them. My dad was there. He hugged me. We were on year five now of knowing each other. But he'd never seen me this distraught. I don't think he knew exactly how to approach me. But I liked his presence there. Someone I knew I could trust and confide in was enough. My dad and my mom had me young. Their relationship hadn't been the best, and when my mom wanted him to be gone, they decided to let her have full custody. My mom used to tell me that they didn't work out because he drank a lot and didn't go to work. I don't know what's true and what's not. My dad isn't like that now. I think they were just both not ready to have the responsibility of a kid or knew how to work it out. And so this happened. I don't blame either of them, and my dad always kept up with my activities. I remember the first time I met him when I was 18. My mom and I went to a Mexican restaurant for dinner. I had barely seen any pictures of him. He's very tall and not exactly what I expected, though I'm not sure what that even was. I knew instantly that I got my wit from him and my annoyance of the general public. He's very progressive, but could easily come off like an asshole. That's pretty much me to a T as well. Since then, we've done very well to get to know each other the best that we can. He had another kid, so I technically have another half-brother, who, unlike my sibling, actually feels like my half-brother. I got my sibling's birthdays tattooed on my arm a few months ago, and I didn't have my half-brothers put on there. Some people on my dad's side thought this was a little insensitive. I couldn't disagree more. My siblings have been with me since I can remember, 
I saw them leave the hospital as infants and grow into the people they are now. I was holding my sister so tight as she cried into my arms after seeing my mom tied up to tubes that night before. My other brother on my dad's side, he wasn't crying. I hadn't seen his life from start to present. I loved him, and I continued to grow our relationship, but our bond will most certainly never be what I have with my other siblings. That's not because of me or him. I'll never have the relationship I had with my mom with my dad. I came out to my mom. I watched my mom sob over losing her kids. It's not bad. It's just different. We have different relationships. Both include love and support. Both are true family. Both mean just as much to me as the other. But they are different. My dad hugged me so tight in that moment, though. He knew what my mom meant to me. My mom still meant a lot to him. Dad, I appreciate you being there, and I love you. Aunt Kelly and her daughter Leslie, who I mentioned last episode, arrived prepared to stay the long haul. A few of my mom's approved family members also shuffled in. We took up a huge corner of the cafeteria with bags and blankets and snacks. I realized I hadn't eaten and tried to have some food. Eggs, bacon, toast. Nothing sounded good, so I passed. Mark, the kids' dad, called. They said they'd wait to see what the status was before they came back down. He said Kevin and Stephen had slept well and were in good spirits. Mark was continuing to be communicable and allowing me to properly handle the situation. Around noon, a nurse and the surgeon allowed us into the room with my mom. She remained in the same condition we saw her in the night before. Visitors checked in and out, brought flowers and cards. Everyone kind of just thought she would wake up and be fine. But once the doors were shut, and just Jack, Brittany, Kelly, and Leslie remained in the room, the doctors told us that the next surgery would happen in the morning, and that it would be just as tough as the first. They restated that it was unclear what other damage remained, or if the damage they fixed would have further complications. They needed to sew up her bladder, put in a stent, stop areas of bleeding, and fix her pelvis, all while trying to keep blood in her system. They scheduled the surgery for 10 a.m. the next morning. He told me to keep preparing. I went outside and got the fire safety box and started to try to find my mom's will. She didn't have one. She probably assumed that because she had nothing, I would know how to rationally divide anything she did have. I found life insurance. Each of the kids would get $25,000 once they turned 18. Derek and I would get ours now, but we'd have to buy a casket and bury her with this money. Derek would never give me money for that. I found the custody papers. The kids would go to Mark without a doubt. I found her mortgage, her debts that would need to be paid off. It all seemed dreadfully overwhelming. How could I do this all from New York? How could I potentially get Brittany and Steven to live with me? 
Should I quit my job? Should I move back home? Go to school again? Live in Indiana to keep my siblings together? It was all too much, and I realized how selfish I was getting in that moment. I was looking so hard at how I and others would be affected by her being gone, how much shit she'd leave with us. I wasn't trying to be like this. Not that I thought, anyways. It just happened. And then I finished her obituary. I wrote it the way I thought she would want to be portrayed, as the mother she was. Her kids were everything to her, and it needed to reflect that. I wrote about her past and her present. It sounded a lot like this podcast, just much shorter. I was outside doing this when I saw them pull up. My mom's cousin, who my mom disowned years prior during the fallout with my grandma, showed up with a card. This cousin of my mom was my grandma's daughter, so when my mom went to live with my grandma and grandpa, they were technically sisters. Growing up, this cousin always seemed to be extremely jealous of my mom. She criticized her constantly for minor things. This cousin would always host our family Christmases and would make my mom feel bad for being late because my mom gave us tons of toys to open on Christmas morning. This cousin had kids of her own that didn't turn out to be much, so I feel like they really took this out of my mom. Kelly and I confronted her in the front of the hospital. I remained calm, but told her my mom would not want her there, that she would not want her in the room. The cousin carried on about how she had just seen my mom a few days prior from afar and wished she had said something to her and that our current family divide needed to be overcome because it was silly. I said it wasn't silly. It was very necessary. She said we needed to come together in this time and support each other. I asked her to leave. She complied. Soon after, my grandma called me. I was in my mom's room. She asked me what had happened, what she could do, why I hadn't called her. All these answers seemed pretty self-explanatory to me. I told her we wanted nothing from her, and she could do nothing, and to not call back. I hung up. She texted me and said I was being emotional and wrong and that I needed her help. How fucking delusional. They were not going to come in when we were our most vulnerable and try to act like our past was nothing. That they could suddenly be there for us now when we needed them before. That somehow they could see through my sexuality and my mom's struggles now, but couldn't before. Sure, she was dying. You could never see her again. But you don't get to do that. You don't get to capitalize on death. You don't get to decide when and how you come back into someone's life when they make you leave. You just don't get to. I poured out all my anger into a response back. I dare them take advantage of this moment. I was not going to let this happen. Before I left, I noticed how my mom was wrapped in white sheets in a white gown 
on a white hospital bed, against a white wall. Her red hair was the only pop of life in the room. I walked back out to the cafeteria. We had all these comforts from home, and I had only packed the necessities for my mom in case she woke up. It made me cry again. I tried to irrationally explain this to Jack. He held me and said we could go to Walmart. Leslie, Jack, and I went and got Mountain Dews, cigarettes, slippers, peach ring candies, chips, and an IU blanket. Just like Oprah, we collected my mom's favorite things and placed them around the room and wrapped her in the IU blanket. It felt a little more like home and a little more like hope. We weren't waiting for her to die. We are waiting for her to give death the middle finger. Maybe it was these comforts, this love we surrounded her with, that made her eyes force open later in the afternoon. She was heavily drugged, but conscious. She began to answer questions by nodding her head. We all piled in the room to say hello. I asked her if she knew what had happened. Yes. I asked her if she knew Kevin shot her. Yes. I asked her if she thought it was an accident. No. I asked her if she felt pain. No. I asked her if she could hear what was going on this whole time. Yes. I asked her if I had done the right thing, keeping our past out of the room. Yes. But then she pulled me in. She tried to talk. Nothing. We found an alphabet chart, and she mustered up enough strength to point out some letters. S, C, A, R, E, D. Scared. She cried as she grabbed my hand tight. I began to cry again. I held her there. I gave her comfort. The family we wanted was all around us. My dad, my friends, my sister, Aunt Kelly, Leslie, Abby and Taylor, and Jack, who rubbed my other hand gently. I had followed my gut and said no to the family who tried to come back into our lives. I had everything planned and ready to go when the time came to say goodbye. I had thought about everything this death was going to bring. But in this moment, we were together with everything that made her feel comfortable. No one had any past feuds they needed to address or guilt they needed to get off their chest. There were no hidden motives or agendas to address. Nothing but pure, innocent love, which my mom had worked so hard to finally surround herself with. She didn't know it but she had it. There were 12 hours left until the next surgery. I looked at Jack's hand wrapped in mine, and I stopped and looked into his eyes, the ones that I missed so much, and I thought to myself, fuck, this is not a good time to be falling back in love. Shot is written and produced by me, Tommy Craven. 
with editorial help once again from Sarah Berry. Music is provided by Summer Underground. Their latest album, More Than a Friend, Less Than a Lover, is currently available on Spotify and iTunes. Their song, Lover Where Are You, is our theme music for season one. Check them out. Additional music this week was provided by Liza St. John from the St. John Sisters. Filmmaking friends of mine who are currently releasing their newest short film, Cargo. See the trailer at cargoshortfilm.com. Your support continues to be amazing. Don't forget to go to iTunes to rate and review the podcast so that we can get noticed in the charts. Also, please share with your friends, family, coworkers, or hell, even strangers. The next episode is titled The Gay Thing and will be available next week.